Welcome to the previously rock hounding podcast where we explore the world of rock hounding and lapidary from the ye olden days of the 1970s and 80s through the lens of vintage issues of Rock and Gem magazine. This is episode 17 and we're looking at Rock and Gem from October 1979. If you're a new listener here, the way this works is I read the issue, Sarah reads the issue, we don't discuss it at all. We come together here on the podcast and share our thoughts on it. What sort of thoughts did you have on it? So my first impression, you know, the the cover has uh, an article: "Government and the Rock Hound closing off the backcountry," which that is like probably the most intriguing part of at least the cover to me because that is definitely a narrative that we still have today where people are like. The backcountry is getting closed off more and more. The more people that talk about rock hounding, the more the government's going to clamp down on it as a hobby. Yeah, like you go out there, like you're digging the holes and you're not backfilling them, they're going to close off the area. Yeah. You go out there and you leave your trash, they're going to close off the area. That is definitely a narrative that gets pushed by a lot of people. So it's interesting. This is... um, the first kind of mention of that. And, you know, I mean, we're in 1979. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I haven't been able to find much before mm-hmm. like this, this issue. I mean, I haven't really seen that in any of the previous Rock and Gems that we've read. And even going back into some other things that I've read, not for the podcast, um, that that's, I haven't seen anything. So, yeah. That was a very intriguing title on the cover. I felt like this issue was really ad heavy. <laughs> it, was. it was, and there was. I mean, I did make, I did note a number of ads, so I have a lot of comments. But I just felt like a lot of them were the same thing we've seen over and over again, and it was just really ad heavy, and it wasn't very balanced. Like if some of the early, the articles towards the front of the magazine, it would be like. One column of article, two columns of ads, three pages in a row. And then towards the back, they were not doing that. It'd be two columns of article, one column of ads, or two pages of article. So I don't know. Didn't feel like the layout, they didn't balance. Maybe more people want their ad at the beginning of the magazine or something, and you pay more. I feel like like with this issue, there's also a lot more full-page ads. Yeah. I didn't count them, but just kind of like going through them, like, oh, okay, so there's a lot more like full page ads in it. I really wish I could somehow know how much money they were making uh, from ad revenue versus subscription revenue from from it, because they definitely pushed their subscriptions hard in in Rock and Gem throughout the 70s, so. I didn't notice it in this issue. Did they have an ad? Yeah, for like the subscription, yeah. Which, you know, I, I'm just curious, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely seems like it's a very ad-driven, uh, yes. like, model. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought there was more color pages than previously. There was. I noticed yeah. that, too. I didn't. I wonder when we're going to switch to full color. How many years off is that? Um, I'm going to say the 90s. Yeah. The 90s is when we have full color. It was a little some some articles. I really wish they would have put color 
Yes. Sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. Well, before we get into the articles, we have some ads to talk about. Now, right away on the inside cover, there is an ad for a Highland Park machine. The six acm cabo gem Hmm. and the cabo gem is an automated cabochon profiling machine Hmm. Uh, these are ultra rare nowadays i would love love to have one of these because it's such like a neat idea so it has a whole bunch of templates uh, and it goes on a on a cam system so you literally have uh like a metal oval as an example and you would have like a dop with your rock on it and it just kind of duplicates that on the grinding wheel next to it and i'm surprised that these have like really fallen out of fashion you know mm-hmm. like nobody's making these be, i mean there's some giant machines but this is like a little home home machine like you would have it next to you know like your trim saw on your bench and mm-hmm. like it would just sit there and profile the cabs and spit them out and that I, I, maybe I, people don't like that sort of automation they want that personal touch and that's why it's not it fell out of favor it's interesting though because in many ways what people want is flawless results from something that looks like a machine did it but they don't want a machine to do it in theory with these since it just runs on a template you can make your own templates yeah. So y- you could copy, you could basically take a piece of metal and make a template for something that would appear to be freeform and duplicate organic freeform cabbing with this, even though it's an automated yeah. little machine. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that was kind of cool. I I want one. Yeah. There'd be a million things that you could do with do with that, like make a million cab shots. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, There was an ad pretty early in it for Covington, which I don't know, maybe we've seen before, but they really like to emphasize how long they've been around. Mm -hmm. And so for this one, they said, 131 years before the Pope visited Poland, Covington manufactured whatever their stuff, which is a weird frame of reference. Was that a thing? The Pope did the pope visit poland for the first time like in the late 70s and so they're trying to be like oh 131 years ago we were making stuff you didn't look up when the pope first visited no poland? i didn't well now you have some homework for the next episode mm. <laughs> yeah they definitely uh play up how long they have been a company and it's interesting because i haven't i've tried to kind of like look up a little bit of their company history and it's not super clear huh. like there's so many companies that we know today that started in 1880 doing yeah. something entirely different than what they do today. So was Covington like 130 years ago? Were they like selling, you know, uh, burlap sacks? Yeah, I mean. And it's just like maintained the company name over time? Like I mean, 1850? Yeah. Were they making rock cutting no, tools? they were not. Yeah. They were not making. What were they? Yeah, we should, uh, should look it up. Well, yeah, try to. Go. I wonder if we could just call. Can I call Covington? And be like, what were you guys doing back in the eighteen fifties? They might have to get back to you on that. <laughs> Whoever answers the phone doesn't yeah. have 
<laughs> doesn't know anything about that. So uh, there's several full-page ads in this issue that uh-huh. I'd like to comment on. There's a full-page ad for emeralds, $5 a piece, which really read like a modern-day scam. It was very scammy. Uh, and it is important to point out that $5 in 1979 is about $20 today. Um, and they refer to this as the uh, quixotic sum of exactly $5. And it's interesting because nobody in America uses that word. Like, yeah. that's not like, a, that is somebody that isn't, isn't here using that. Uh, these emeralds are just one carrot and they will be rough but they don't say that like they yeah. don't say that in that that it's going to be rough because like they imply like oh you're getting an emerald and it's not it's how definitely, do you know it's going to be rough because you definitely couldn't be selling a one carat cut emerald for that price I think I think that's a little was this from the International Gem Finders Society What was the company selling the emeralds? Well, hold, hold on. Hold on. Um, so some of the, the way they worded stuff in this ad, they're like, they say things like, our motives for this emerald offering will be unabashedly self-serving. If you accept in the same spirit, I think we shall both be well pleased. That's their... Ex- I think this is... Did they have a couple more? They, they have a couple more. So of these. yeah, this is the international. What did I just say? International gem mm-hmm. finders. Well, so they have an from you know these. There's another ad from them. So uh, they have another full page ad, and it says four dollars. Yes, four dollars a piece for fully faceted genuine diamonds. And then they had about eight paragraphs. Of text. I liked the first sentence of the text. <laughs> we it started by saying we made a boo-boo <laughs> last month. We goofed. <laughs> and it's going to cost us dearly. We purchased a huge quantity of diamonds to meet the demand of our customers, but we made a dumb error in the quantities we purchased. They have a different co- but it's interesting because they have a different company name than the other ad. So they have a different company name and everything from, you know, from different than the people that placed the one about the emeralds. But they have the same 1-800 number for the state of Illinois. Because back Uh, then, 800 numbers were not necessarily uh, nationwide. hmm. You would have 800 numbers for nationwide. And then there's another 800 number if you're in the state of Illinois. They shared an 800 number. So they're, they're running two businesses with different names. But sharing a phone number, so if you were like in it, you you could catch catch that. And in fact, they also had a third ad selling emeralds for three and a half cents per carat. So they're running kind of like some kind of like grift through these ads, I think. Yeah. Um, on the emerald one, they said this announcement is preposterous. So we ask that you read our triple guarantee carefully. And it was like if you. I don't remember what the guarantee was, but something if it's not as described what they described, you get triple your money back and which it said read our triple guarantee carefully and believe. 
yeah, it's felt very scammy. And also, we haven't seen very many ads for, like, faceted stuff. Like, most people are selling rough rock. <laughs> or I guess some places sell, like, lots of, like, a cab or a shape cut out. But there are not really a lot of big ads for fully faceted or I guess emeralds, three and a half cents per carat. That's... I guess that fits, but yeah, they were definitely very, they stood out, they seemed scammy, they were written in a ridiculous style, like, what kind of company is going to be like, we made a boo-boo, <laughs> like, wow, that's the place I want to buy my diamonds from. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, it was interesting, I'm, very different. I'm surprised they don't, they had like no standards for the magazine back then, like... They're just I can't imagine seeing that and being like, okay, this is going in my magazine that I'm the editor of, so I approve. Yeah, but how much did they pay for those full page ads and three of them? Maybe if they're like, we want a half page, they'd be like, I don't know, scammy, but they want three full page ads. Sounds like to me that Rock and Gem made a boo-boo. Yes. <laughs> Maybe they're like, eh, our readers are smart enough not to get scammed by this. Let's take their money. I, yeah, I've, I've, it's just, it's all, all such a, a grift. Definitely a grift happening there. You know, there's many red flags with them. Um, there was, I think, a three-page ad for Lortone again. They had one last mm-hmm. issue. And I was looking at it because they list all the shops in every state that are Lortone dealers. So I read through them, and there was some with interesting names. There was Dad's Rock Shop, Fumble Fingers, Sticks and Stones, but like Sticks, S-T-Y-X, Sticks and Stones Rock Shop. One was called Tegla-ha, like three words. It was in Kansas. Okay. Yeah. T-A-E-G-L-E-H-A. I was like, what does that mean? Uh, In Maine, they had Treasure of the Pirate. (laughs) In Michigan, they had Dig Some Gem, like some S-U-M. Ohio has Rock and Chips. And then in Oregon, there was a rock. There's a dealer called Nelson the Rocky Feller. (laughs) <laughs> those are definitely more creative yes. than many of the there was a lot of just like treasures of the earth rock shop a lot of plain ones but those were pretty good Still, that, i won't i'm guessing those don't re- exist anymore no i the longest uh continu- open rock shop i've ever heard of would be ed's house of gems in portland i think like they kind of they probably take it if not the oldest they're right up there yeah i mean i think there's we saw an ad for ed's house of gems in the first Mm -hmm. uh rock and gem that we've read on the podcast so yeah and they're still open now Mm -hmm. they were uh up for sale and then i guess it went off the market and now I think their son is running the business. Mm. I'm not exactly sure what's up mm. with Ed's, but they are still open. So yeah. There was an ad for a company called Biosafe who claims in an ad 
that there's an additive that you can add to the water for your trim saws Mm -hmm. that increases the diamond life 300%. That's a lot. Uh, So what's interesting is you dilute it to a ratio of 30 to 1, Hmm. which that's incredibly diluted. And I've never used any of these products. You can still buy stuff kind of like this today, Hmm. and it's like blade extender. And I think it's all kind of a scam as well. Uh, from what I can tell, they're all a surfactant. So uh, I think a lot of people have the experience with a surfactant being jet dry. That's mm-hmm. uh, what you'd put like in a, a dishwashing machine to make it so that all of the water drops are gone off of the dishes. So pretty much it just breaks surface tension of, of, of it. Um, it fascinating though some of the claims like extend the life of your blade 300 percent by what it's not a lubricant it doesn't do anything it would just in theory make the stuff that would maybe potentially cloud up the water in the basin of your saw sink more to the bottom Hmm. because there's no more surface tension in the water i'm like I don't know. Yeah, it just I kind of I kind of want to try. I kind I think I need to get some yeah. surfactant because um, that's what I assume they just have like you're, they're selling a concentrated surfactant. Huh. But uh, that I think that might be the first time I've seen surfactant uh, water based lubes or whatever you want to call them uh, marketed in the magazine hmm. so far. I haven't uh, really seen that, so I'm sure we'll see more because it is. It, it is a product where I think it's there's a lot of room to make a ton of money. Because if you look at the cost of, like, today, the cost of Jet Dry, like bottled Jet Dry on Amazon, <laughs> um, it is significantly cheaper than an equal-size surfactant being sold and marketed to lapidaries. Huh. Uh, so, I mean, you could literally just buy Jet Dry and, like, put it in a different bottle and be like, triple your money. Yeah. So hmm. maybe I got to go cut some rocks with some surfactant. Yeah. There was an ad for the American Opal Society's 12th annual Opal Show, which sounded good. And it said there was a sixth annual Opal Seminar. But it was strange how they uh, described the, the costs to get the entry fee. They called it a donation. Hmm. So they're like, the seminar is a $30 donation. And then it say where you're donating to. I mean, you're donating it to the Opal Society, right? Like Yeah. Why or, would it seems it seems sketchy to call it a donation, isn't that? You go to any show, you're giving money to the people who put on the show. That's not a donation. I wonder if by calling it a donation, do they get around some type of regulation? I don't know. Like, you know, if you have, like, example, you can't have, in many cities, you can't have a for-profit event in a public park. But you can have a free event with a strong suggested donation. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was something like that. But when you think of, like, oh, thing, something, event with a suggested, I mean, it wasn't suggested. It was, like, a required donation, <laughs> I think. But if you think of something with a donation, you're like, 
now and today's money this was $30 that's $120 I don't know I can't think of being like oh yeah you need a donation for your opal society here's $120 that is a lot that's not a donation there was an ad for tag it tape Mm -hmm. which have we seen that before I don't think so it was a specially formulated to secure stones to the dot pad it's another thing that's what I do the, the, I don't use tag I, it tape. I, I use a Loctite branded yeah, tape. I think it was another one of those. And they said three twenty five a roll, but it didn't say what a, how much was a roll. It, yeah, how many? Like, how many? It didn't like say. Feet it didn't say. It just said three, like three twenty five a roll. Send your money order or check. Like who would do that? What if a roll is like three inches? I would love to have a conversation with somebody that was participating in the rock hounding and lapidary hobby in the 70s and would like buy stuff through this like how many times were you like disappointed when the rocks showed up mail order rocks from Mm -hmm. dealers back then i feel like it would be a high high number of people only bought once from people yeah probably and that's why they changed their (laughs) change their name so many times well, there is an ad from a very reputable company. Uh, and I think this is more telling about how uh, my brain works today, being very influenced by the internet for decades at this point. Um, there was an ad for perky boxes, which that's like mm-hmm. the little, like, one and a quarter inch by one and a quarter inch, like hinged plastic boxes that you would have for like mounting thumbnail specimens in. And, you know, it's, uh, they have an interesting usage of capitalization in their ads. Um, So they use full capital words. And in my mind, right, when I read this, I read it as yelling because there is a big portion of the internet where if you type something in all caps, it's like yelling into the computer. That's how like that right. is done. So uh, the, <laughs> the ads read like three popular sizes of jet, black, base, clear, hinge top, miter cut, pure, white styrofoam, inserted tightly, fitted into each base. And I'm like, I read it like that yeah, in my mind. So like I, I do kind of like selection of words make i I up the volume in my mind i'm like there's no way they could have predicted the internet obviously back then uh that we'd be communicating in that fashion but yeah i I definitely read the all caps as somebody shouting at me do you read the all caps like that depends sometimes like if they're just like black white i'm like okay they just want you to see the words black and white i guess but if they're less of a meaningful capitalization then yes maybe i'm not as discerning as you because i definitely read it like somebody (laughs) shouting at me did you have any more ads that you'd like to talk about nope well on to some columns start with the glory hole which is the editor's column and then this month you can add some of the standard updates corrections yeah. and stuff um 
some small things in past issues and uh, some. It wasn't yeah. really much of it substance. Wasn't a whole lot. He did have a little blurb about diamonds in California, and he like opined on where they come from because diamonds don't form in granite. Um, and that's kind of what he left it there. It's just like a it was pretty short little thought. Well, diamonds form in kimberlite. That's be, that's you know that's how we get diamonds. Uh, kimberlite deposits. They found a paper from the GIA, and they put something out saying that about six hundred diamonds uh, have been found in the state of California, and a few of them were of gem quality because typically. The diamonds that come out of kimberlite are, like, not of lapidary jewelry use whatsoever. Hmm. The vat, like, you know, I mean, we're talking about things that are just way too small. Like, uh, I, I have some diamonds that were given to me, and each one is a quarter carat rough diamond, which basically means, you know, it's uncuttable. You know, like you're not, I don't think anybody's cutting quarter, quarter yeah. carat rough diamonds. Because what, if you're losing like 50%, 60% of the rough in the cut, like, I mean, you're talking about like something that's minuscule in size. And most diamonds are, I don't even know if you can measure them in carat weight. Like, you know, we're talking mm-hmm. about stuff where it's like, only interesting under the microscope. Yeah. And even still, diamonds are actually really boring. Mm. Like rough diamonds, like, I don't know. Like they're not very cool to look at mm. um, under the microscope. They're just kind of like, meh, all right. Like, um, but yeah, I just thought it was weird that in his column, it's this like very non-definitive just like thing that he just threw in there about yeah. diamonds. I don't know. A little bit maybe filler this month. Yeah. That was kind of the theme with the columns, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Frantic Fumbler was uh, enjoyable, his column, mm-hmm. about the importance of clear communication. <laughs> and I think that it that lesson stands the test of time. It does. Yeah, I think... Uh... Mr. Mark Collin kind of outdid himself with this frantic fumbler. Mm-hmm. Um, in this one, you know, he expressed his frustrations with some of the different communications he's had with his fellow rockhounds and lappy dappies, mm-hmm. which I need to start using that more on a daily <laughs> daily conversations. Uh, yeah, so he had some great examples. Um, if somebody says really good or that's a nice job when you show them some of your finished work that's time to worry uh. <laughs> uh, when somebody says wow that's great it means that at least you've met the minimum standards of acceptability mm-hmm. if somebody says my god that's a fantastic job it means it's a fair piece you're okay Somebody says, that's not bad. It means you've done a fantastic job. Oh. And 
And when the comment is indifferent to like not too shabby, that means when you just that means you just conquered Mount Everest. Oh. It's the it's the best. Hmm. Do you think that's true? I don't really show my work to anybody in the sense of like give me feedback. Yeah. But people are definitely cryptic with how they talk about stuff. Mm. So uh, mm. maybe that's just exclusive to the lappy dappies. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that example. His other little anecdote was you're out in the field and you see someone with amazing rocks and you're trying they're telling you like go 10 steps this way and then turn at the tree and then this and this and you they're making up words and you their directions are impossible to follow which is true people are horrible about giving directions we will see that in an article shortly even yeah people are so right on with that maybe more of that should be required reading for people wanting to write a field trip article. I forget which issue it was, but we've talked about mapping in previous issues. So, I mean, the information was there. Like, people, yeah. like, had access to good information about how to map things and share directions and... They just didn't get the memo, and they still haven't today. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like this month's shop talk. Um, I thought it was kind of lame well, that, that's... They, that they used a, did a lapidary quiz to test your knowledge of things, and they used, it was like testing your knowledge based upon photos. And these are the tiniest, worst, lowest quality black and white photos. Yeah. So I didn't do it. Well, because he mentioned in the glory hole that the author of Shop Talk decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And it wasn't the first time he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. So that's why they had to fill in with that quiz. But they said someone else is going to come back and do the column next month. But it, I guess he's doing Shop Talk still and not a new column. It wasn't really clear. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. We'll have to we'll That find. would be a kind of a sad end to Shop Talk. <laughs> Just this bad quiz. There's so many topics that could be covered in a shop talk column. So they they haven't even scratched the surface. But we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what the, the future holds for the shop talk. We might be coming back next time um, and uh, have a very different uh, mm -hmm. set of columns to look at. Well, it said the guy who's going to write the new column was, it sounded like he was more into faceting. Hmm. And less general. It said he had written some articles on faceting, I think, for Rock and Gem. So might have a little bit different focus and maybe you won't find it so enjoyable. I may not find that very <laughs> fascinating. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, articles. This uh, one was a, a little different because it seemed like they've... I get previously to this year, it'd be the first article was always a how-to that kind of felt like an ad, but I, we haven't seen that these past couple issues. Yeah. It's been different. And this one started out with the, the very much anticipated... The government and the rock hound. Just what is the BLM doing with our public land? 
I this article did not live up to my no. expectation. And so this article written by Steve Smith, he's a BLM ranger. Yeah. And I'm of the belief that this whole notion of the government closing down the backcountry, it's like misleading to say it like that. Um, it was misleading to imply that in the title of the article that they were discussing that? Yeah. So... <sighs> I thought it was just really basic information, you know, like... Yeah. I obey mean, signs that tell you don't drive here. There's a lot of <laughs> land, public land. There's not all BLM, so, like, make sure you know where you're at. You mm -hmm. can stop by an office to get a map. It was... So let me explain, in a nutshell, what this whole closing off the backcountry is. We have public lands. We often have roads going into public lands. And when somebody makes their own road and they come in and close it off, that's the closing off of the backcountry, right? Yeah. At no point have I ever seen a very like good example I mean, I can think of a couple of examples of illegal mining operations shutting down an area, but that's not like a dude with a rock hammer. That's somebody like trailering in heavy equipment and be like, I'm going to get everything. That's an illegal mining operation. Yeah. But what they're kind of talking about here is imagine like a desert area, a Southern California desert. And all these people have off-road vehicles and they're just kind of like going off the roads. They're not saying you can't walk out there. They're not saying you can't go rock hounding out there. They're saying that you can't make an illegal road into the backcountry and do that. Go wheeling in places you're not supposed to. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's the gist of it. Like, that's the closing off of the backcountry. You can't drag your fifth wheel trailer off-road into an area that they don't want vehicles. You could park it on the road and hike in you could drag a wagon right you could bring a wagon full of supplies you could have a horse a donkey i don't know you could do all kinds of things but there there's definitely no motorized uh area areas mm -hmm. you know and often one thing that people forget is like with a uh, uh, wildland fire crews sometimes in areas where they have to like cut blow down trees over trails and stuff they don't even let those guys use chainsaws, hmm. you know? So like they still use uh, cross cuts, like handsaws and stuff hmm. because there's just areas that they don't want the fire risk. And I get it. You don't want people driving through like tall grass and stuff like mm -hmm. totally get it. Technically, I guess you could say that's closing off the backcountry, but you need to follow that up by saying closing off the backcountry to motorized vehicles. In very specific places. In very specific places. Yeah. Um, they did talk about uh, wilderness study areas, um, which doesn't necessarily limit your ability to go rock hounding. Um, mm -hmm. It just limits your ability to drive into it. So that was one of the things they, they talked yeah. about in here. Um you know, we have wilderness study areas 
in many places. Um, and often the main thing is they don't want you to impact the wildlife because it's a study area. Yeah. And often you can still go rock hunting in wilderness study areas. I mean, the legalities of rock hunting, it may, it's, it's complex. The reality is, like, you have to just do some research, you know? Like, state, every state is different. State parks are different, state to state. You know, state some, parks are different even in the same state. They are. Like, you know, here, um, it's quite common that uh, people go rock hunting on the, the Washington Coast beaches, right? And often... We have state parks that extend out into the below the high water mark mm-hmm. out there. And there's rules that allow for that. There's state parks where they're like, no. And then you can have uh, supervisor or superintendent bulletins that override existing regulations as a temporary measure. So, like, it really is very nuanced. And to make, like, bold assumptions and be like blanket statements of, like, all oh, state parks, you can't go there. Like, mm-hmm. no, it's not true. Not true. But anyways, yeah, uh, the basics of it are they're closing off illegal roads. And that doesn't fit into the narrative much. That- yeah, it wasn't what I expected. It was, but uh, maybe there's not really, they don't have like an opinion section, like a letters to the editor section, which is where I would think there would be people being like, they're closing off the land. So I wonder if they'll add that. That seems like a thing in every single magazine. Almost. It does. Yeah, they don't have that. They don't. Their their articles are more fact based, learning, teaching, mm-hmm. less opinion. So I guess should have known, but they title baited us with that they did. title. You like Jade? We don't have any jade. We don't. Maybe we should go to Georgia because there's jade in Georgia. Jade in Georgia. Well, it's as green as jade and it cuts into beautiful gemstones. It's not jade. (laughs) Yeah, so this was kind of an odd article. And dare I call it uh, 1970s clickbait. Uh, So it was a story of somebody finding a green rock and they called it jade. Uh, so a few other people like went to the location that this guy found this green rock that he called Jade and they did some more investigating and they found more of these green rocks and I'm sure, uh, they, they look nice, right? Um, this was one where I really wish they would have had the pictures in color. Yes. It was really, it did look like it probably looked nice, but it was impossible to tell what it really looked like yeah so they they go out they find more of these green rocks uh and you know they start working them like they cut and they you know do all the things um so they took them to the university of georgia for some testing and it came back as epidote yeah that's the that was like the last line of the article like they went through the whole thing (laughs) and then at the end they're like yeah okay it was actually this yeah i thought it was i mean I thought it was a really good article, a well-written field trip article. Mm-hmm. Like they had a little backstory of this guy coming to him and being like, "I found Jade." They had good directions. I mean, I was able to look it up nowadays. Um, 
I mean, they had, if the pictures were in color, it would have been really good pictures. They really described like, oh, we went to this part, we found this vein, and it looked like brown on the outside, but then you broke it into it, and it's mm-hmm. green. Like, I thought it was very well written, other than the uh, exaggeration. Do you think we're spoiled by full color? Because you got to think, at this time, the prime audience of Rock and Gem yeah. lived through having black and white television. Yeah. They... A lot of the media that you consumed was in black and white. You know, uh, the majority of books at the time didn't necessarily have colored photos all in them, you know? A lot of, so I, are we looking at it from the perspective of everything's in color now and finding stuff that's black and white? We're like, that's not that great. Were they looking at it the other way? Were they coming at it from the perspective of everything was black and white and now we have some color and some is better than none? I don't know. Maybe if you're used to looking at black and white photos, you can better imagine in your mind the real colors. True. But also the quality of a black and white photo really varies. And we know in this magazine that they don't exactly always include excellent photos. That is also a very good point. I have some scanning electron microscope Polaroid images of minerals from like the late 70s and going into the 90s and they look incredible mm-hmm. like the the, sh- the the resolution on them is just fantastic um so yeah i mean i guess it could be a lot of things yeah also did it did the ink hold up for f- the last 50 years like maybe the ink is yeah maybe we're seeing some decay in our magazines years. yeah that's um, possible i mean maybe we've we never commented but these uh rock and gem they're not exactly printed on glossy paper it's like newspaper some of the pages are glossy usually ads <laughs> yeah <laughs> but mostly it's like printed yeah. on like newspaper I don't, I don't know is the picture printed on like newspaper i think the pictures are generally on a more glossy black and white but yeah no i thought it was good i thought the one thing they didn't mention was who owned the land that they were rock hounding yeah, on. I mean, when you look it up now, it's like a county land. And they mention, oh, go past, like, the telephone house or whatever, and that's that's still there. But hmm. I wonder if this green rock is still there because it looked like there was lots of cuts in the, in the land from satellite, but I don't think you're supposed to go on it. It looked like the hmm. county's, like, stored extra equipment on hmm. it. Well, moving right along, we uh, can't read an issue of Rock and Gem without some lost wax casting. How to cast orchids, even fragile flowers, can be cast in silver and gold. So this is another lost wax casting process. Uh, But I actually thought this one was kind of neat. Because a lot of the lost wax casting, it's either like a more technical article of the actual process and maybe some changes that they made, or yeah, just... You know, I don't know, casting stuff. But the fact that they're uh, casting natural things, I thought was kind of neat. And they do really get into some details of the process here, where if you were doing lost wax casting, you could definitely follow along and Mm -hmm. uh, cast these things through their exact process. I mean, they get into a lot of details about, like, soaking a flower in water so Mm -hmm. that it can fully absorb and it'll be like very firm and Mm -hmm. 
give you can have the maximum amount of I guess like texture in it um but yeah i mean out of all of out of all of the casting articles that we've read and looked at i think the end results were probably the the best out of everything that i've seen yeah i know a lot of this stuff is kind of kind of neat to like think about like pine needles mm-hmm. you know or or whatever kind of cast just casting that like don't do any work other than the casting work and just skip the design and be like natural design yeah yeah i thought it was uh interesting enough that i read it often i will skip things of this nature because we don't do it and i don't have any familiarity or interest in it but yeah it was interesting to hear all their little tips and tricks and um i wonder when when does the lost wax casting start dying out nobody's doing it now no, people are still lost wax casting today. It's just definitely not popular. When does it, when do we stop seeing <laughs> an article about lost wax casting every single issue? I'm gonna say 1985. 1985, yeah. we see a reduction in casting popularity. It's just the silversmithing work. It just doesn't. I technically it's a is it a, a silver or a rock or a gem? I mean, it's a mineral. Well, we're not reading mineral <laughs> magazine. It just doesn't feel like it fits. I understand it's, that it has historically been a thing that people who are into rocks do silversmithing, but it doesn't to me. It feels like it's a whole separate thing, and I know we've talked about it before, but yeah, I, 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 I less agree. interested. I mean, we also our next next article: the stamps of White Eagle. A master craftsman tells you how to make your own. I didn't really. I found this one kind of hard to follow because I didn't understand. Well, is he stamping silver? Yeah. So what it was a pretty this? simple article, really, um, and it was about making stamping chisels. So think about. When you see a finding today, so like you can get on the Rio Grande website or whatever and you can buy a belt buckle that you'd slap a cabochon in. Well, if you're going to make that out of silver, like think about like all the little grooves as like texture, the texturing of silver pieces. Uh, those are made with stamping chisels. So, so it's like I mean, a- imagine a chisel that would have a bunch of like grooves in it. And then when you hit that onto a piece of silver, it leaves an impression of that. So uh, it's adding decoration to silver, basically. And he talked about making his own stamping chisels so you get something unique. Yeah, I guess I didn't, I found it hard to follow. It was pretty short. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, look, it wasn't like an artist profile and it wasn't a teach you how to do something. It was not. It was just like this thing exists that, that this guy does. Yes. That. <laughs> Why not make it like a full artist profile like they usually do and show some of his work? Or mm-hmm. They showed like one picture. I think they, yeah, they showed one. Yeah. Finally, finally a good field trip. Even though the Jade in Georgia was a field trip, they didn't call it a field trip. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, but this is our first uh, field trip. Opal near Hinkley in the California desert. The whole mountain is opal. 
I had to say it like that because it was in all caps. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, uh, th- this is a trip report to an area in Southern California. Um, I th- yes, they have opal there, but today I think it's most well known for its agate and jasper. Like, do people still go out there? You know, uh, this area is to the northwest of Barstow, so it's very well-hit place, but I think most people go there for the agates. Mm. I mean, a lot of the opal... They mentioned in the article, like, oh, there is also agates. Yeah, I think a lot of the opal is of low quality. I mean, but they kind of went back and forth on in the article. First, they're like, meh, the opal's just, like, whites and browns, and then they're like, oh, no, opal of all the rainbow, and... I didn't really care for this article. The pictures were particularly bad. The map was extra bad. The directions were not good. So I thought the map wasn't that bad because it, it was numbered. And then in the article, they like you, they would well, be like spot two and then yeah, no, spot two. Uh, yeah, so they did have that, but the roads getting to the spot Mm -hmm. getting to the spot was not clear they didn't put the names of any roads they're just like take the road north out of town and then take a left here but their map wasn't drawn to scale yeah and i tried to match it and they said in the article like there's a ton of roads out here it's easy to get lost but they only included the roads that they want you to take on their map and i tried to look it up on a map today and i was like there's no road that looks like this but if it's not drawn to scale, how am I supposed to use that shape to match it to a real life? I didn't appreciate that. I agree. Did with everything. Roads, did, I, I, I did like their numbered... Yeah. The numbers on the mm-hmm. maps with the description. I think that utilizing that way of communicating something is good, yeah. but all the other things kind of negate that. Do you think the roads had names back then? Because they have names now. Like the dirt roads? I mean, yeah, it's like the, I mean, it's not a dirt road. It was like road one, four, four, four. Like they have names. I'm not exactly sure uh, when the counties switched to things like that. There was a period where there was just like a lot of unnamed roads that received no county maintenance or cared about it. Um I don't think that's really the case nowadays. Like almost everything has some identifying number somewhere. Some sort of map with a name on it. I didn't like it, but it sounded like a good place to go. Opal and Agate and huge area. It looked really pretty. There's another article that was kind of really stood out on the cover of this. And it is, are, are fire agates really opal? The scanning electron microscope indicates that they're the same gemstone. Um, For me, I think it's rather unfortunate they didn't include any photos (laughs) from their uh, scanning electron microscope when they were talking uh, in this article. I Um, I mean, would people be able to interpret what they're looking at? Yeah. So... Uh, what they're basically saying here in this article is that the flash of color in a fire agate, which comes from, you know, southern Arizona, the Saddle Mountain area down there, it's caused by 
the same silica arrangement that you would see in opal because opal is very uniform silicate arrangement that creates that play of 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 light those flashes um that's basically what they're stating in this article is that that is the case is that the case no wrong 100 percent wrong so it's definitely a discredited theory um also the article was kind of like hey nobody's really looked at this anybody want to look at it mm-hmm. i'll send you the stuff like if you're affiliated with the university let me know i got because the author was owned to mine but he didn't mention it really in the article which i thought good for him for not trying to advertise your mind but the color is caused by lemonite mm. so uh lemonite with like quartz over it that's huh. what the fire agates are so i thought it sounded kind of like a stretch because they're like oh on the very bottom of the agate there's a little coating and that's what we tested and i was like well you're just testing like a very specific part of it or the scanning electron microscope wouldn't be the proper test for this now i don't know when uh x-ray diffraction x-ray fluorescence came into existence but i don't believe it was if it was in existence in 1979, it was in its infancy. Um, and I'm also not sure when we came to the conclusion that the coloration in fire agate is a coating of lemonite. But, you know, uh, it's kind of hard. I, have, I know of a couple of resources that talk about the dating of these types of, I guess, discoveries. I don't want discoveries. They're just kind of general, like, aware making things aware i don't have them they're all published books that aren't in my possession yet um but yeah it's neat to uh i'm surprised that they made this conclusion because at this period of time there's a lot of other minerals that display the coloration that you might get out of opal where you know, like with a fire agate, where it's kind of like almost that like oil sheen, shimmering rainbow effect. I mean, we see that in acenopyrites as a coating. We mm-hmm. see that in bornite. Like, there's a lot of other things that have that effect. Yeah. Why did they make the assumption that it's opal? I don't know. I mean, if you only know of opal doing that you're going to attribute it to the only thing you're aware of and you're not aware of those other minerals that can cause that effect. Yeah. I mean, I also don't know about the age of their scanning electron microscope. Like, what? I think they said it was older. Oh. I think in the article they're like, yeah, it's kind of old, but... I want to, yeah, I don't... So back in the day, uh, I guess maybe even... I don't know what they're doing nowadays, but they used to be able to put a piece of Polaroid film in them. And that's how you could get an image out. Hmm. Um, and I have some. They look they look amazing. Um, I'm sure nowadays they're not using Polaroid film. Probably not. <laughs> uh, yeah, so well, it's neat to read what people are thinking back in, back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Gem set driftwood. You can improve on nature by combining wood and minerals. Uh, What did you think about this? You go first. Mm, I mean, I thought it was interesting 
because so I mean he takes the premise is you take a piece of driftwood and you clean it up and any like little hole you put like a were they faceted yeah faceted gem in it thought it was interesting because he mentions like driftwood clubs i looked those up do do they exist no (laughs) they don't exist i don't know there's probably like a driftwood facebook group or website or forum or something the implication here is that there's like rock clubs how we know today and there's like you know a hierarchy of a president a vice president and trustees and all of that and like meetings and Mm -hmm. that they have like a driftwood driftwood clubs well he says he being really common is what he said he said they mentioned they mentioned that driftwood clubs being really common and he says he went to a driftwood show yeah um so that was interesting but he mentions that his project that he did, it's not. he thinks it's not actually driftwood. He thinks it's forest wood that he bought at a driftwood show. It seemed like, I thought it looked kind of creepy. It was almost like a bunch of little eyes in your driftwood. Maybe if the photo was better or I saw it in person, I wouldn't mind it. But I thought it looked a little creepy. It seemed like he really artificially, like, he did a lot of work to the driftwood to make it look like he wanted. When I think of driftwood art, I think of going to like the coastal communities where people that have like vacation homes or are full-time residents there and they have tons of driftwood and floats and nets and things yeah, like in their yards. That mm-hmm. And that's what I think of. I don't think of this because he, he took a wire brush to it and made the, the grain of the wood more pronounced yeah and he took a chisel to the knot holes to make them bigger like i just he did a lot of modification it's it seemed a little bit like an hgtv type project Mm -hmm. like all right like fun home decor project and you're just kind of like it's kind of tacky yeah maybe if he had put less gems in it like maybe if there was only a couple it might have been okay but there was a lot yeah there was. Yes. Are you going to put a picture of that? There is. Okay. You can go see it at currentlyrockhounding.com. Slash podcast. Yes. Yes. Another project article, Rock Flower Pictures. How to satisfy even Miss Fussy. Yes. I thought the pictures were nice. I mean, so it's this, it was about this woman whose husband got into rocks and she was like, he's always in his shop and I'm all by myself. So she picked up, she She went to, she was like a widow. Yes, she was a widow. So she went to a show and she saw this, somebody who did this and it's like taking little tiny tumbled rocks and gluing them. I think it's a lot more than that. And I've seen these before and when done well, they look absolutely amazing yeah, they look amazing the samples the some of the photos looked really neat i like that they walked through the exact process of this because this isn't something i've ever seen really discussed and it's also not something that's actively practiced nowadays yeah. um i think a lot i mean a lot of like rock clubs that are older and have some projects from their members you'll see these if it's mm-hmm. an old club but Pretty much, you take a sheet of silk and you pull it really tight over a piece of cardboard. Now you have a platform and you can tumble, carve, shape, do whatever with your stones. 
and you assemble them on this board mm-hmm. and you glue them down and you frame them. That's the basics. Yeah. And, you know, they talked about some of their trials of like, getting, you know, the different glues and like, you know, not having that fabric sag because that's mm-hmm. a thing. Um, I mean, I, I would love to see more people take these types of things and put them into practice. I'm not going to be that person, but I think it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it did say she buys the rock from a company that is conveniently advertised on the back cover of the magazine. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not something that you, yes, craft stones and top stones. Um, it's not really, I mean, you, you need such a big number of stones that it's not really something you'd really have to tumble for a long time before you had enough to make your, your image. So there's that. Um, I thought it was interesting, the story of how she went, saw it at a show and she asked someone about it and they like took it away from her and wouldn't answer any questions. Like, how insecure are you that you're at a show displaying your work and someone's like, oh, that's really cool. How did you do that? And you're like, give me that back. Don't look at that. If you want people to look at it and ask you questions, don't bring it to a show. But then she sees someone else who did it and they answered all her questions. That's how she got her start on it. Yeah. People are very, people can be very protective of how they do things in the lapidary world. They just mm-hmm. don't want to share their little techniques because if there's another person that could potentially be making something nicer than them and then they're now less than. I mean, that this is the first time we've seen this in Rock and Gems, so clearly that person is less than. <laughs> um, the only thing in this article is they described her making a, a piece and there was no photo of it. Yeah. There was photo a photo of something else. Like if you're gonna do like a it was kind of a in between of like DIY not DIY but like a how to kind of artist profile but very not taken seriously and I mean all the other ones where they describe someone making a thing, they show you the thing. Why would you not show the picture? I mean, because I was like, Oh, I don't, can't really understand imagine what they're saying by you glue this thing here and mm-hmm. it's like oh also i think this fell out of fashion because they're using those gar scales Ugh. fish scales in it which i'm glad that isn't around anymore if they are i would love for somebody out there to email me if if you know of a shop a physical rock shop selling gar scales please tell me i'm just i'm curious if i'm curious yeah who's buying who would buy that that's just i don't know they're there's something about it that I find kind of gross. <laughs> gross. Yeah, it is gross. <laughs> like, here's your fish scale jewelry. Yeah. We have two articles left. Solid silver show. Never has there been such a varied deposit of silver. And this was about the Tucson Gem Show in 1979 because it was their 25th silver anniversary. Um, what did you think? Well, they talked about the competitors or the comp- the competitions mm-hmm. that they have and kind of like who won. And I don't, I've never seen display competitions or like 
mineral competitions, which it's a thing. Mm-hmm. And I mostly don't care for the concept behind them. Like if you're competing with like something you make, yeah, right, and it's like we're test we're checking your skill. That I can be like, okay, I can get behind that, you know. But with some of the displays, it's who has the deepest pockets that can assemble the most elaborate, expensive collection. So, uh, I don't know. That's my take on it, being an outsider, having never participated and having never witnessed it. But I know that there's micro-mounting competitions, and you're really... It's really money-based, I think. Do they still do them now? Competitions like this? Yeah. Do they have themes to them? Sometimes. Oh, not all the time. Yeah. So, uh, like... I think at the National Federation show, there's a cabochon competition where, which that's even a little different because you select, I think, 16 of your best cabs that meet their cabochon Hmm. guidelines and they judge those, which that is more skill-based. But if it's mineral displays, it really is how many tens of thousands of dollars have you spent on minerals? Because there's a 0% chance of winning if you're only finding stuff. You know, it's going to be people assembling, uh, like, let's say, type locality minerals from mines all around the planet. And they've spent $50,000, $150,000. You might think that's exorbitant. Um, Right now, as we record this, the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show is going on. And looking at some of the photos of what is for sale at Mineral City, you see a display case, and it's filled with minerals that range between fifty dollars and $180,000 each. And we're not talking about, like, giant things. We're talking about little things. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, it also said, like, some of the competitors were museums Mm -hmm. like oh this museum in mexico brought a sample of silver i wonder if that's i feel like they don't do that anymore there's no museum being like hey we need to take this silver sample and we need to ship like i'm gonna go up to tucson and hopefully we'll win a ribbon yeah that's i I don't know i'm not i'm not not very familiar with what the competitions look like nowadays but it definitely gives me this feel of like... How are you going to compete against a museum? How would you compete in a one-on-one basketball game with an NBA player? Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, you know, they're going to... Yeah. I think it is different nowadays in that museums uh, do not have the best collections. And I'm not talking about the Smithsonian, but generally speaking, minerals, there's better specimens in private hands than museums because museums are relatively poor in comparison to what private collectors have. I mean, you see specimens in Tucson going for $4 million. Museums don't have the luxury of buying a $4 million specimen usually. So they're usually at the whims of people donating. Yeah. Um, I do think they said the Smithsonian entered in this con. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how are you going to beat the Smithsonian? But, yeah. Other than that, yeah, you're right. Well, your, your point stands. Congratulations, Smithsonian, on getting your blue ribbon. Yes. 
I thought this article was good until the end, probably like the last third of the article. He talks about this book that was published, maybe the last half, the silver anniversary history of the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show. And he's like, oh, and this year we've got this book and it's only printed 1,500 copies, but it's super, super popular and amazing. And it tells the history of the show and people are using it like autograph books and oh it's just like the most well-loved received thing ever all right bye and then it's like editor's note the author of this article also wrote that book yes like i don't know if i can trust anything in this article now like he really hyped up that book a lot and he did not mention he wrote it this is definitely the best podcast on the planet ever pertaining to Rock and Gem magazine from the 1970s. No, I think I might need, be a little biased though because that's me saying. I that. think you need to just say that on Facebook or on your <laughs> on your YouTube channel be like, "You guys, have you ever heard of this podcast? It's the best." And just don't mention that it's your podcast. <laughs> that's very There's no where's the journalistic integrity? <laughs> not here well the tucson show people go to it every single year and people see each other and grow yeah. old together right and this almost like a yearbook uh-huh. and today there's still like art you know internally published articles mm-hmm. it think of it like an award ceremony for like celebrities the oscars right what is that? It is celebrities voting, nominating, however it works. Mm. It's like them giving themselves awards. Like it'd be like me buying myself a podcast trophy and submitting it to you. I'm giving you yeah. the best co-host award. Mm-hmm. The dog's awful. You beat her. She oh. don't, the, like, like it only messes up the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it doesn't seem... Yeah, that was not... not Well, we're going to finish this one on a high note because we have part two of Cabbing with Diamonds. We did part one last time, and this is uh, from the Frantic Fumbler as he explores the world of doing lapidary with diamonds because at the time, corundum, silicon carbide, that is the primary thing. And, you know, we've seen... The rise of diamond product in these magazines, the ads, all of that. At this time, it's, of course, really expensive still, you know. Uh, So this is kind of his, like, comparison. Um, In the first article, he really discussed how diamond wheels are made and some of the advantages that you have with them over silicon carbide. This article is more like pros and cons. Like, here's some information if you've never used diamond wheels before, or in our case, if you've never used silicon carbide wheels, because that diamond is the majority now, silicon carbide the minority. Although for me, um, I have a lot of experience with silicon carbide because I use a Richardson's Ranch high-speed sander, which uses silicon carbide wheels. Uh, So I'm a little more in the... SC camp here when you he said that when you use silicon carbide you get a lot of sludge buildup which is true uh, versus diamonds you don't a good example of this would be uh, think of like the slurry that comes out of a rock tumbler you know you can it builds up 
silicon carbide, if you take like an 80 grit silicon carbide and you start grinding on it, um, that pad will break down and now it is a finer grit. Or in the case of a continuous thick hard silicon carbide wheel you're throwing that stuff off and it's landing in the tray below you and it does build up and kind of makes like a they're definitely more messy they're more messy like when the diamonds come off it's not a big deal you know um so you get more it's cleaner to work with diamonds for for sure uh, the motors so uh a diamond wheel, you take an 8-inch diamond wheel and an 8-inch silicon carbide wheel, the silicon carbide wheels are significantly heavier. I mean, nowadays and back then, like you look at the Nova wheels, everything was plastic core. So you have a, the whole inside of the wheel is plastic, and then you have a layer of diamond on the outside. So like very lightweight. So by running diamond wheels, you could have a smaller motor. It's quieter. Well, kind of, it has the potential to be quieter. Definitely has the potential to be cheaper. Uh, I don't think I see a whole lot of, I mean, there, nobody uses full silicon carbide hard wheels anymore, but you needed a bigger motor back then. So that's a, a, an advantage. Um, and the diamond wheels are definitely safer. So they don't really produce the same kind of, they don't produce dust in the same way. I mean, if you're using water with both, you should still probably be wearing a mask with silicon carbide. And silicon carbide can explode. Uh, diamond wheels don't explode. Mm. So those are kind of some of his pros and cons. He's definitely leaning into diamonds for a number of reasons. I mean, mm. you know, I, I still think there is a place for silicon carbide in lapidary. And I would personally like to get some hard silicon carbide wheels mm. that I could test myself because it's not an experience that a lot of people have a lot of people buy a cab king and they got you know diamond wheels and uh diamond impregnated resin wheels and that's just their experience now so i kind of want to start at the beginning and get some old sc wheels and try them out i think a lot if you look at a lot of the older machines people had two grits they had two grits right like you'd have like an hmm. 80 grit and like a 400 grit and then you would go to uh buffing compounds on a wheel so i mean think about like a combo unit back then you have on your left you have like a six inch trim saw and then you had your two wheels and the side wheel so he's definitely leaning towards diamonds and i see i see why yeah explosions that seems something you would want to avoid <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think that mostly the exploding wheels are come from misuse. But, you know, if you can entirely negate that, especially like think about like uh, rock clubs, rock clubs, you have new people and maybe they don't know things and having a high speed spinning stone wheel, because that's basically what they are. There's it's a stone wheel and having that blow up in the shop and send fragments places is uh not good, not fun. Yes. You have any thoughts, comments? No. I wish the Frantic Fumbler would write more articles, because I actually, I really like these. And it's not yeah. just because I'm nerding out about chemical vapor deposition diamonds, but I am. <laughs> I might be a little biased there. I might be a little biased. Maybe we'll see more. We'll see. Well, next time. 
on the previously Rockhounding podcast, we'll be looking at Rock and Gem magazine from December 1979. And after that, we'll be leaving the 70s. But next time, we'll be having a very lapidary Christmas. We'll be faceting your findings, tourmaline, field trips, and a step-by-step how-to on making your own gifts. I don't... It's a very generic cover, so I guess nothing to really get our hopes up for. I'm sure there will be field trips and step-by-step guides, so it will deliver. Next time!